Welcome to Season 2 of Connect to Capital, a podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I am Samar Michaela, co-CEO at Scale Investors, and I will be your host for the second half of this season. I want to take this opportunity to thank Catherine Robson, the former chair of Scale Investors, for hosting the podcast and for her unwavering support and advocacy. Our vision at Scale Investors is a world where gender does not limit access to capital, and we're on a mission to maximise returns by investing into Australia's best women-led startups. We know the transformational power of collaboration, and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education, and deep network to enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors. We believe that knowledge is power, and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We are thrilled to play our part in providing entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. And if you're keen to invest and maximize your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realize the significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au to learn more. And make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a minute. After growing up in Texas, Hannah Parton-Sears studied chemical engineering and nanotechnology at the University of Southern California. Following that, she began her career in transportation in Australia, where she worked across corporate strategy, safety and supply chain. After completing her Master's of International Economics and Finance from the University of Queensland, she joined Black Sheep as an investment specialist. At Black Sheep, Hannah's involved in all parts of the investment lifecycle, from taking first meetings with startups, progressing due diligence, and post-investment engagement. She also is engaged in bespoke project work with portfolio companies. She's an active member of the local Queensland startup ecosystem and conducts regular office hours with local startups. She has a love for all things early stage, particularly companies with an impact lens, and she also loves fantasy and sci-fi. Hi, Hannah. It's so good to see you. Hello, Catherine. Good to see you too. Now, I'm speaking to you from sunny Brisbane, but that's not where you're originally from. How did you find yourself here with the accent you've got? Yes, I'm from Dallas, Texas originally, which is a far cry away from sunny Brisbane, although still very sunny. (laughs) I guess sort of um, after growing up there, I went to the University of Southern California for college. And while I was in LA and at USC, I actually studied chemical engineering. And we had sort of no flex in the program to allow for study abroad. Like it was very sort of rigid. And back in the US, I guess it's really common to do your sort of study abroad semester. And I was always very jealous because a lot of my friends came to Australia for their study abroad. Sounded amazing. Seemed like sort of a really great culture. So when I finished up my degree there. I actually applied for a temporary work visa with my engineering qualification, which is nice and easy. I actually got approved in like three days, which is crazy. <laughs> so yeah, after getting the approval, I moved over a few months to finishing graduation, thought I'd be here for two years max, sort of have a bit of fun, live in Australia and then go back home. And that was six and a half years ago. <laughs> so I just never left. Why chemical engineering? What was it that attracted you to that? I was really good at maths and chemistry, sort of, I'd always had math as my favorite subject. So I knew I wanted to continue studying it. And honestly, I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. I just sort of figured, this sounds difficult. It has two things that I'm very good at. So I might as well just like, 
give it a go. And you know what? It was a great degree program in terms of, I guess, moving into VC, actually, because it's all about operating within uncertainty, making lots of assumptions, detailing what you know and what you don't know. And even like when we would do our exams in ChemEng as well, like we would all come out of them and have wildly different answers. You'd work through a really long problem for like an hour. We'd all leave the exam. Everyone has come up with something different because you're just all making different assumptions, but we could all be sort of not equally right at the end, but all get sort of um, passing marks based on that. So yeah, I guess that's why I picked it. I just had absolutely no idea really what I wanted to do. And I thought, if I study business, I can't be an engineer. If I study engineering, I could still do business. (laughs) Was venture on the radar when you were starting to think, you know, making that sort of trade-off between keeping options open? Did you have sort of a pathway to venture as one of the options you wanted to keep open or was it not on the radar at all? Like not even remotely on the radar, which is really funny to say. (laughs) I originally thought I would probably end up in maybe management consulting. And so while I was at USC, I was doing all sorts of different like case study prep workshops, doing all of the networking to actually go into like a Bain or a McKinsey. And that was kind of the vision that I had and how I saw myself. Very happy that that didn't really work out for me. But venture wasn't even remotely on my radar. I actually know a few friends who work in BC back in the Bay Area and in LA who are like in my sorority and who I went to uni with. But it was never something I really considered for myself until sort of once I had about four years of experience, I went ahead and did a master's of finance. And it was through that program I started thinking, okay, maybe something in private capital could be really interesting. How do you sort of marry that with I guess, a passion, a love for technology, for working really in an agile fashion. And I feel like VC kind of was the natural answer to that. But very much a happy accident to end up like actually an NR team because being Brisbane-based, like the scene is pretty small. Can you tell us that story about how your sort of connection to Black Sheep fortuitously happened? Honestly, it's a really funny story. I was coming up to the end of my master's program and randomly saw the job advertised on LinkedIn. And I was like, you know what? I kind of tick every box that they're going after. They'd said on the job, no investing experience necessary. You don't need to have worked in a startup. I was like, great. I don't know anything (laughs) about investments. Um, I haven't worked in a startup So I went ahead and applied for it. It said Brisbane or Sydney-based. I thought, great, Brisbane-based. There were about six rounds at the the interview process. It was like chatting with an AI chatbot, then having an AI phone call. And I'm thinking to myself, like, they must have invested in these companies, right? That's why I'm like going through them. Then, you know, some psychometric testing. And then finally, I get to an interview with the team. And I feel like it went really well. They asked me a lot of questions about sort of the way I think about things, how I approach challenges. And it was much more focused on, I think, who I was as a person and how I sort of, I think, viewed different situations. And then it was about investing and like, how do you calculate returns and X, Y, Z. And so it was really funny when we got to the end of the process, my boss, our partner, Dan, he said, hey, let's go have a coffee. I should note this was peak COVID. So everything had been virtual up until this point. He's like, you pick your local and I'll come to you. And so I picked my local and we show up and he's like, my house is like a hundred meters from here. <laughs> it's like, mine is as well. <laughs> so yeah, we actually lived right next to each other. I had never seen him around the neighborhood. He had never seen me. And then of course, like after we meet, then I saw him literally everywhere. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, very funny. We had a fully remote process. They were going after such a big swath of people applied for the job and I was just right down the street. So that's how I came to Black Sheep. It sort of feels like a very happy accident that I just saw the post through the application process and yeah, managed to get the job. But I think as well, when you're joining a really small team, that cultural fit is so important because it was a team of two on the investment side before I joined. And now we're actually back to a team of two. But of course, when it's that small, one new person joining makes a huge difference. Tell us a bit about Black Shape. Yeah, absolutely. So we are an early stage software investor. So we do first check from pre-seed to sort of late seed stage. We're actually a family office first and foremost, although I think our branding is a bit deceptive. People think we're a very slick VC, um, but we're actually not. Family office, but we do have a sophisticated investor syndicate that sits alongside us, actually named The Flock, a group of small sheep. I actually came up with that, so I'm really proud, really proud of it. And then a very small fund as well. So we've got sort of three pools of capital that we draw upon for any of our investments and look to do four to six new investments per year. We're actually vertical agnostics. We'll look at anything, but sort of, as I mentioned, software first. So no hardware or consumer good investments and just local based founders in Australia or New Zealand. You mentioned part of the rationale for wanting to do chemical engineering was because it was hard. Do you think that that was part of the attraction of VC for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm probably, it's very funny. In my personal life, I love things to be super organized and detailed. But in my professional life, I actually love a bit of chaos and like uncertainty. And I think that was a big draw card is working with super early stage companies where you already know there's going to be a high level of uncertainty with what's happening. But it was also, I think, looking at new technologies in new spaces that, you know, are at literally like the bleeding edge sort of of innovation that was so cool trying to wrap my head around that. And I think the idea as well that we would look across so many different industries at once and get that exposure. It's probably also just outside of doing chemi because it was hard. I've always just really loved learning new things. And I've found it at least in my career, I find that I'm getting the most out of my job and it's the most rewarding when I'm doing something that I don't know much about. That really, really excites me. And I think that's the thing about VC that is so wonderful is getting so much exposure to different new things and different ways of operating as well. Like when you're meeting all these teams, you're figuring out sort of how they're working together, how they've sort of divvied up their responsibilities and approached the business. And that's also a really cool side. Given that, as I said, you like learning new things, big appetite for understanding how the world works, but can you give us any insight in terms of how you've built those skills, given that you didn't come from a software background. So, you know, you've got the sort of analytical skills and problem solving skills from Chem Eng, and there's a whole lot of probably aligned skills, but different. How did you go about sort of acquiring what you needed to be able to make some of those decisions that, as I say, are ambiguous, but you want them to turn out right? Yeah, absolutely. I think initially a lot of listening in the job faking it till you make it 100%. Now that I'm almost sort of three years in, I'm at a really nice stage where I feel like we really looked deeply at opportunities across most of the verticals. So I've started to build a really good knowledge base. But at the start, it is just asking so many questions and knowing, I would say, the right questions to kind of dig into 
in each opportunity space. So sometimes in a first meeting with a founder, I mean, in every first meeting with a founder still, it is me asking a heap of questions about the opportunity and the space they're in. And it's being able to really quickly, I think, dive into perhaps not problem areas, but different challenges associated with that business model and with their vertical and sort of even the go-to-market. And usually if it's meeting that goes really well and it's we want to progress to a second conversation, I always go away and do a bit of work as well and reading and trying to understand to find those market reports to dig a bit deeper. But I would say, yeah, it's focusing on asking the right sorts of questions. And the way you learn like how to ask the right questions is just by practice, by meeting with tons of founders. When I joined Black Sheep, it was literally my second day on the job. And the team was like, oh, hey, we've actually got a meeting we have to do. Do you just mind taking this meeting with the founder and like just throwing you in the deep end and saying, these are some good examples of questions, but you know, really just follow your instinct and ask what you think is interesting sort of based on the pitch deck and what we've told you. And yeah, it's through that practice of um, just listening a lot, asking a lot of questions, nodding my head, writing down abbreviations and saying, Google that for later. (laughs) Over those three years that you've been working with Black Sheep, the prevailing environments changed a lot. So my guess is it started when there was lots of liquidity and high valuations and now capital is much more scarce and there's probably a deeper list of people who want to come and talk to you. How have you personally navigated that given that it's coincided with your early venture career and given that you've only got the capacity to sort of invest in, you know, as you say, sort of six odd investment opportunities, how do you get confident in that changing landscape that you're backing the right ones? You know what? It has been pretty wild because when I started still, valuations were pretty conservative when I first joined the team because it was still peak COVID. So I think everyone was a little bit nervous. And then, my gosh, we saw sort of 2021 and early 2022, they were absolutely sky high. I think in terms of how we navigate that, we probably as a team have a natural bias against anything that's hypey. And I think it's probably a bit of maybe risk aversion in the space where anyone gets too excited about things like Web3 or crypto. We probably shy away from those spaces. And I would say it tends to be the really hypey ones that people paid a ton of money for in terms of valuations. So I would say because of that, we've really played in maybe a safer space in VC than a lot of the other sort of bigger investors have. But I think as well, we probably have a natural bias as anyone does towards technologies that you can intuitively understand a bit more. And at least for myself, with a lot of the Web3 and crypto plays, I would genuinely be like, I don't understand the value add with these. And I think it was a funny one because sometimes you would see these crazy rounds getting away and you'd know that the vows would be super high for these pre-seed and seed opportunities. And I'd feel like, what am I missing? What am I missing? Is there something cool happening? But then I think it's always one of those things where you have to tell yourself, this is probably the most important thing I've learned in VC is that, no, I'm a smart person. If I'm not understanding this, you know what? That's okay. I can be comfortable in not understanding it <laughs> and not being able to digest this new thing. Because I do think sometimes you can say, I don't get it. Like I'm falling behind. There's something about this that I don't understand. The zeitgeist is moving on and I'm <laughs> still sitting here not getting it. But yeah, I think generally where we play and what we like to look at, we didn't see sort of the crazy kinds of vowels and premiums that I think some of the other spaces did. 
So that's, I think, a fortunate thing for us and for how we invest. Are you able to give us a couple of examples of companies in the portfolio and how they illustrate the sort of things you're looking for in the investments that you make? Yeah, perhaps there's two that I will highlight because I work the most closely with these two founders out of all of the portfolio. One would be Llama Life, which is a um, sort of consumer-facing subscription app that's specifically, it's in the productivity space, but it was really built by founder Marie to help herself with her ADHD that she's been really publicly on a journey about finding an app that works best for her and her time management. I always like to highlight Llama Life because it is the only company within the portfolio. I mean, sort of one of the only consumer SaaS ones that I use every single day. And that we had a meeting with Marie and both Dan and myself went away. We tried out the app. This is what, 18 months ago? Still use it every single day. And I think Marie is a phenomenal founder for a few reasons. One of which she's a self-taught dev. She is so incredibly deeply passionate about solving for this space and has been working on an application like this for so long that when we actually met her, and it was at sort of the really early seed stage that we made our investment. We felt so strongly about her as a founder that it was a really sort of easy decision to make going forward with that investment. But she's also very analytical in her approach and how she's looking at growing the business. So she had a lot of those core skills that we really look for in a founder. And the other company, I would say, is Book an Artist, which is very different. It's a marketplace for businesses and people to find local artists. So to do murals, canvas painting, sketches, things like that. And founder Garav actually has a background as an accountant, which is sort of very different than your typical founder that's founded a marketplace. But with that investment as well, I think I remember seeing the pitch deck initially and I was blown away with how he'd really looked at the unit economics and how he sort of detailed the business plans. And that's one thing that I think within the portfolio is very consistent between all of our really strong founders is those that are able to focus on the unit economics from an early stage. It tends to be a really strong reflection of how they're going to be as sort of a later stage founder and how they can evaluate the business. Grav is, you know, the same as Marie in terms of that analytical focus. He's also a very honest person and his updates, he's really open about what's happening in the business, how he's feeling as a founder. And I think that is such a strong thing to have. And it's really wonderful. And that's the kind of relationship as an investor that you want to have with a founder. One that's very transparent, that's back and forth. And also I should say, both those companies, both those founders, they're so much fun. <laughs> they're just great people. They're people you want to catch up with and that you're so excited to be on their team. And that makes for a great relationship. And I think as well, like we talk about sort of looking at all of these things related to the business, like, you know, the go to market acquisition, how they're going to be hiring, how they've sort of pulled together their financial model. But at the end of the day, as an investor, you're entering into a relationship with a founder for five to 10 years. You want it to be good. You want it to be someone that you want to catch up with. And like I always, <laughs> I always kind of make the analogy that it's like dating, which sounds a bit funny. But you know, you have that first meeting, you're kind of testing the waters, you're seeing if there's a good like back and forth. And if you feel like, hey, this is someone that we could work with really well. There's always that test at the end of the day. And I think all of the founders in our portfolio, I mean, they all tick that box. They're all really smart, 
really great people that you'd be happy to go have a long lunch with or, you know, to cheers a beer with them. So that's another thing that, of course, you always look for because the best founder investor relationship, they do have a level of getting along at sort of the base of it. Which also presumably means they'll be good at managing their team and managing their suppliers and managing their customers and all of those things. And hiring, that's the other one. They will be good at attracting good people to the business. Because at the early stage, if you're attracting people that have worked in startups before, yeah, they kind of know the landscape. They know the risk that's involved. But if you're not, you need to be able to sort of sell them on the dream, on the vision, and then why you need them to join at this early stage. And absolutely, it is a big test if they can hire the right people to get them to the next stage. We talked about relationship there. And often there's a trope that a VC is hyper-local, that you end up investing in relationships with people that are proximate to you, that live close to you, that maybe have life experiences similar to you. How much does that affects the deal flow you see being based in Brisbane and your confidence in investing in Brisbane-based startups versus how important is it to sort of break out of that and be able to make sure you're not sort of always defaulting to a sort of familiarity bias? Well, out of our 19 active investments, only two of them are Brisbane-based. <laughs> so we uh, naturally have a bias probably away from Brisbane. No, it's just in terms of deal flow and startups, Brisbane has a really burgeoning startup scene. And we see some really phenomenal high quality founders here. Brisbane's actually the bootstrapped capital of Australia, though. So not many people go after venture funding as compared to some of the other cities in Australia. Most of our Earlier stage portfolio companies are actually based in Melbourne. I would say, in terms of how we kind of look at our natural biases against the kind of deal flow we want to see, Dan and I both travel a fair bit to Melbourne and Sydney, which are sort of the two VC main areas that we see most of the startups coming from. But I think the way that we operate, and even probably me being from the States originally, Dan having traveled a lot as well, I think we gravitate towards founders that have maybe much more of like a worldly view. I would say as well, it's it's maybe less about being hyper-local in terms of sort of that location element, but more I think that we look for founders that have similar values and similar sort of experiences probably to us. But that being said, we're always trying to get a more diverse pool of founders, more female founders coming to us as well, because you know, those numbers are still not amazing in terms of the total number of founders that we actually see come in. So you talked about values there. Does Black Sheep sort of crisply articulate their values so that founders can understand whether there's going to be a value match? Yeah, you know what? I think we could probably do a better job of that on the website. I'm pretty sure we have a blog post about it somewhere. (laughs) But hey, we actually... And sort of last year, I saw this thread on Twitter and I thought it sounded really cool. So we actually did it last year. If you submit a pitch deck to us on our website and we look at it and we decide it would be a good fit to progress to a meeting, and we actually send you a pitch deck, a little black sheet pitch deck. So we have our little little reverse pitch deck that are pulled together. And I think it really clearly articulates exactly what we're looking for and that values piece. I mean, our core values are really honesty and integrity. Those are huge. Our other one sort of as a team is internally sort of we're happy if you mess up just own it that's our big thing as well and the values that we look for in founders also you know is just 
people who are good people, people who are really good people, who are empathetic, who are good to work with and to work for. That's really what we look for. We're not looking for someone who wants to work 80 hours a week and says they'll do anything at all to succeed. We actually don't believe in that. And we don't do that as a team either. It's not something we would ever encourage a founder to do. Both Dan and I have small kids. Mine is getting less small now. (laughs) She's almost 17 months. So she's a small agent of chaos. And we get that work-life balance. We sort of encourage our founders to um, do what they need to do as well for themselves, for their family, for their sanity, and being honest and upfront about what's happening in their lives as much as they want to be is very encouraged on our side. So yeah, we always like to say we're kind of like the family friendly (laughs) VC as well. I love that idea of the reverse pitch because as you say, it's a relationship and quite often there's this big asymmetry of information and understanding. What advice would you give to founders if they've got multiple interested investors? What advice would you have to help founders assess who the right fit for them is going to be? Yeah, well, first off, well done if you're getting to that point and you're picking and choosing who's going to be on the cap table. That's fun. I would say, honestly, ask around, ask different founders and ask your VC, can I get a founder reference from you? We have had a lot of portfolio companies that we've recently invested in do that. And we connect them with founders in our portfolio. We say, yeah, ask them whatever you want to about us. So a lot of VCs are going to ask you for customer references. You can do the same. Ask them to introduce you to a few founders. You can even ask to be introduced to a specific founder, potentially. I mean, it always depends if it's like, a really later stage business, they might not have that much time. (laughs) But we'll always do what we can to formalize an introduction there. But yeah, ask around other founders as well. Like Australia and New Zealand, it's pretty small ecosystem. Someone's going to know something. And I think as well, just don't be afraid to ask the VC if they have a problem with introducing you to founders in a portfolio. I mean, that's a bit of a red flag. Like I probably would not want to do it. But also, you know what? Just trust your gut. Trust your gut on everything. Oftentimes, I feel like we like to say that we have all these frameworks we follow. But at the end of the day, if something doesn't feel right when you're meeting a founder, when you're looking at an investment, usually that's a sign that probably something doesn't add up and your gut's telling you that maybe maybe to walk away, maybe this isn't the right sort of fit. So always trust your gut when it comes to sort of investors as well. Is there a a mistake or a setback either in your investing career or in your life generally that's been formative in helping you improve and that you reflect on and think it was painful at the time, but I've learned lots from that? Oh, yeah, there have been a few, hey. Um, (laughs) I think probably one that is career specific that was quite painful is I sort of mentioned earlier talking about wanting to go into management consulting and how that was kind of the vision and the dream. Well, I went through a very long interview process with one management consulting firm. I won't go into names, but I remember getting to the final interview stage and the guy that was interviewing me had my resume up as well. And like I said, I did chemical engineering. Like I wasn't crazy passionate about it. And I also had a job the whole time I was at uni. So like other things were happening. I still thought what I had was a, a good, decent GPA given what I had studied. And I remember the first thing he said to me is, why are we interviewing you if your GPA is so bad? And I was like, I was completely floored. Because one, I didn't even think it was bad. (laughs) I was 
still don't think it was bad, but it felt like a really antagonistic thing to say first up and then spent the whole hour we were chatting and I felt absolutely horrible about myself. But he was also, I just remember it was one of those people that couldn't like hide their facial expressions and it felt like it was just giving me this really dirty look. And I remember at the time it was one of the most ashamed I've ever felt in sort of a professional or educational setting and just thinking, wow, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. Obviously didn't get the job, (laughs) Didn't, didn't get the offer. And at the time it was a real blow, I think, because it shook probably for the first time ever a real belief I had in myself that I could do whatever I wanted. And that was, yeah, a real shock. Now I look back at it and I think, why would I have wanted to go down that pathway? I'm not someone who was made to work those 80 hour weeks. I don't enjoy that. I love having my home time and my time unplugged. And now reflecting on the culture and the friends I have that actually did join that organization, I'm so grateful that it didn't go any further. And I think as well, if I would have gotten that opportunity, I wouldn't have moved to Australia. I would have stayed in LA. I would have kept working there. But yeah, quite a sting at the time. Hey, I think when someone says something that feels like a personal insult, I can be a really challenging thing to move away from. I remember months later feeling bad about it and thinking like, oh, you're the worst. Like, <laughs> You didn't get this job, which that was what a blessing in disguise. Quite happy I didn't work there. And then I can imagine, has that helped inform the way you deal with founders? Because it is a position of power that you have as a funder and you so often have to say no. Like if you make six investments a year, presumably you dozens and dozens of no's to get to six yeses. How has that sort of informed the way you try and communicate bad news to founders? Oh, it's such a hard one because you're right. I think people think VC can be a really sexy industry, which let's be honest, it can. (laughs) But a huge part of it is saying no to people. And it's really sad because when you're meeting a founder, it's someone who has quit usually the very stable job They're taking a huge risk to do something they are massively passionate about. So I think you do have to be really careful when you're saying a no, because you never want to burn someone or to hurt someone like that, because they're taking a risk and good on them for doing so. That's exactly, you know, how things innovate is by founders. I always spend a lot of time with our nose. Like I usually, at least in my long life, I set about 25 minutes to make sure I craft something that's pretty thorough and gives a really good explanation as to why we're passing. I never try and say just, oh, it's too early or something like that. It's always a pretty detailed response around why we're saying no. And I like to make sure I read it and try and understand it from their perspective, that it's nothing that would be too insensitive because hey, at the end of the day, some of our current portfolio companies, we passed on the first rounds that we saw them and we invested in the next round as well. And I always like to be really upfront if a founding team is doing that. I like to say, hey, like we would actually love to revisit this. I mean that very genuinely. Please reach out again because it does happen and it has happened a few times in the portfolio, actually with two of our more recent investments. So sometimes when the investor says, it's not a right now. They actually, they really genuinely <laughs> mean that. And look, it's very rare that I send a no email that's something like something has been 
misrepresented, for example, like that almost never happens. And those ones are a bit shorter. So you mentioned you invest time in things that don't necessarily have an immediate payoff, but in the sort of karmic sense, presumably they do. But presumably that gets really difficult to, to manage all the yeses plus all the noes plus, as you say, the sort of unplugged time so that you've got the reflective capability and space to be doing some deeper thinking. You mentioned Llama Life. Are there any other sort of productivity tools or habits that you use to give you that sort of full allocation of time across the 24 hours a day that we all have? I actually do have two apps that I love in my personal life. One is Headspace, the meditation app. I'm a huge fan. I try and do at least two Headspace meditations a day, which can get a bit much. But fortunately, they have like three and five minute options. So you can just squeeze them in. Usually works. I always, always, no matter how busy my day is, feel better after I do a Headspace meditation. It is just a nice little unplug, a little refresh. The other one is called Rise and it's a sleep management app and so it gives you smart bedtimes and smart wake-ups and I find it's just a really nice reminder of hey it actually tells me to stop drinking caffeine for the day and then it tells me an hour before my bedtime when I should stop looking at a screen and wind down it's just those nice prompts to actually hey you know what start reading your book start getting ready for bed I've always sort of had a bit of trouble sleeping so it's good to have reminders when I should stop drinking coffee so I don't have like 10 coffees (laughs) day. But look, outside of those, I'm just using my notes app a lot. (laughs) I've got like 50 different notes running for like meal prep and other sort of house to do items, things like that. I think it drives my partner absolutely crazy. I'm like constantly updating them (laughs) saying, hey, can you do this thing? (laughs) You mentioned sleep and obviously reading a book is one of the ways that hopefully facilitates sleep. Any books that you would recommend that have really, either you've really enjoyed or really helped with that sort of relaxation so that you can live a a sort of balanced, healthier life? Oh yeah. Look, I'm going to be really honest with you, Catherine. I'm going to be honest with all your listeners. I am not someone that enjoys nonfiction books. I'm not somebody that's like, oh yeah, read this book about venture investing. I find them so boring. I mostly read fantasy and sci-fi books. The only books I want to read are ones that I can't put down. And It's generally fantasy and sci-fi that I get really into. I recently finished the third book in the Dune series, the sci-fi movie that came out last year that I've been getting really into. I hadn't read them before. Oh, like I've been absolutely obsessed. I cannot put them down. My husband's literally actually making me ration them out. Like he's like, you cannot read them all at once because you'll just be like a little bookworm. I've just finished the third book in that series a week ago. I'm waiting to start the fourth. Like those are the books that I love. Peter F. Hamilton, Victoria E. Schwab. Like those are the authors that I really gravitate to. So yeah, I would say go to your local sort of sci-fi and fantasy section and get some of the recommendations from there. Those are the books that I just absolutely love and that I think fuel me wanting to do hard stuff at work. I don't want to be working when I'm reading my book. I want it to be a fun book that I... (laughs) That helps me relax. And help you use your brain in a different way and switch to a different gear so that you're sort of fresh when you go back to the work stuff you're doing. Well, that's it. Sometimes I see people reading like philosophy books and other stuff as they wind up and I'm just, I don't know how they take it. I don't know how their brain takes it. Like, I just want to imagine a world where there's dragons and other cool stuff. Those are my wrecks. (laughs) Any podcasts that you like, either fiction or other? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've got, I have two. One's my intellectual recommendation. My other one is my not intellectual recommendation. So The Gist with Mike Pesca, I've actually listened to it for about eight years now, which is almost the whole length of the podcast. And it's phenomenal. Mike is sort of a native New Yorker, really fast talking. He's got great takes on different current events, particularly like political news in the US and probably sort of being an American. I always love to hear his take on what's going on, but he interviews the most fascinating people, like different virologists or sort of famous athletes as well. And the interviews are always really, really engaging, very interesting. Like he asks them pretty cool questions. And as podcast host as well, I feel like it's quite cool when he does his research. He's always read their books pretty much like cover to cover and can ask them very deep questions. So I do love his podcast. The other podcast I listen to, like I'm obsessed with Real Housewives as well. In my spare time, if I get a chance, I love my some me some Real Housewives. The Comments by Celebs podcast does like pop culture takes. Like it's a bit of fluff. It's a bit of fun. The hosts get on like you know house on fire. They're really funny. Also American. Those are sort of my two my two wrecks. My my smart wreck. I'm not smart wreck, but hey, if there's any Bravo addicts out there like myself, <laughs> comments by celebs is a good one. Oh, well, and also presumably just a little piece of home in terms of that sort of fast talking Americans, you know, seems to fit with. There's some fabulous Queenslanders, but some of them speak a lot more slowly than uh, fast talking New Yorkers. <laughs> Look, I already live with one, so. I just need to get my, my fast-talking Americans in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Two last questions. What are you really excited and optimistic about? You know what? Something that I think I'm feeling much more optimistic about lately is, I guess despite bad news on TV, is really climate change technologies. We, although I've said we're just software investors, we see so much come through deal flow that has a climate impact to it. And it is incredible. Incredible to really see some of the innovations and you know, particularly the hardware innovations coming out of Australia and the local ecosystem and what different companies are focused on. You see all of the different sort of meat alternative companies that we've got that obviously we haven't invested in, but some big local investors have and some other climate tech businesses. And I feel really positively that so many smart people are sort of dedicating their time and their energy to working on these different technologies. I think it's really amazing. That's an area that I feel I feel very optimistic about. But generally, I think Australia is becoming a bigger player year after year in the sort of startup space. Like we've seen a lot of big US funds and US investors make investments into local Australian startups. I think there's becoming a broader recognition on the world stage that Australia is an amazing place, one, to live, too to become a founder. So those are some things I'm really positive about. Since I've started as well, we have seen more and more females come to pitch to us for investment, which is really exciting. And I don't know if it's a matter of sort of there is a female on the team now. So maybe they sort of see the team section and think, hey, maybe it's a better fit because there is a, a female investor on the other side of the table. But that's another space that I feel really good about. And it feels like there's more and more momentum growing there. So, I mean, generally, I feel pretty good about a lot of things at the moment. And you can't be mad when you live here. Like, it's just a beautiful place. It's just 
fantastic to spend time with you. It's fantastic that people of your intellect and opportunity choose to you know, live in Australia and invest your talents in Australia. My last question is I'm going to get you to um, say your last name so that I get the pronunciation right. <laughs> it's Parton Seer. Parton um, Seer, so, okay. Yes, my maiden name was Seer. My husband's is pardon, so we, we both hyphenated. I told him that he now has to suffer the challenge of no one understanding how to pronounce seer. But there you go. It's originally, well, it's originally French, but very common in Quebec. So for the Quebecois, there's quite a few seers running around the place. There you go, pardon seer. Hello, pardon seer. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to chat. Anytime, Catherine. <laughs> We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did. As an investment venture firm founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like we do. We believe that education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both investors and founders. You can find them on our website. And if you're keen to invest and maximize your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realize a significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing us at ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss a minute.